0: Would you be seated, please? And uh, this isn't me trying some new like preaching style. This is me getting wrecked in my soccer game on Wednesday night and spraining my ankle. But um, I think I'm okay. I Look better than I did a few days ago. I got rid of the crutches, but um, I borrowed these crutches for my neighbor and he's a big cyclist, and he attached a water bottle holder on there, and I didn't think about how weird that looked until people started commenting on it, and then I was a little self-conscious. Anyway, uh, if you were here with us last Sunday, well, let me acknowledge first, um, this is a little bit different of an order than we we usually do things, and if you um, have your little order of worship, worship guide here, um, you're seeing that... Usually we we have this time of prayer and and confession, and we we say the Lord's Prayer together, and then we enter into the preaching of the word and lead into the Lord's Supper. Some of those things are gonna be a a bit different today, and uh, even more different than I initially planned, because um, I I put, there's a song, just a heads up, there's a song on the next page, The Love of God, that we are actually gonna sing before we um, begin a time of confession together. So I'm looking forward to it. don't worry, it's not going to, like, stretch you in the, in a, out of a, a comfort zone of, you know, the, if you are an introvert, you can just be at ease. I'm not going to, like, have you stand up and do something. But anyway, if you have been here the last couple of weeks and, and been paying attention in the text that we go through in Mark's gospel, you'll see that we, um, we, were, we did a chunk of uh, verses last week and we skipped over a few verses this week, we're going to spend some time looking at those verses. And what we have been seeing is this announcement of, of the kingdom of God. And then we saw these uh, stories that Mark was telling about what it looked like when Jesus was demonstrating that kingdom. So we, we saw here is the, this one, the Messiah, the, the, the one who is ushering in this kingdom. And then this announcement of here's what it looks like. And what we're going to see today is uh, a different side of what that kingdom is and what that looks like, because we are going to be looking now at the king of that kingdom, and we're going to be looking specifically at the heart of that king. Um, So let me read our text for us, and then I'm going to pause and pray. And if you have enjoyed following along with us, open to your Bible in Mark chapter 1, Um, I brought a a little refresh on our Bible stack at the table over there. If you would like to follow along in the the gospel of Mark, and if you would like a Bible, uh, you don't have one, or if you know somebody who doesn't have one, um, it would be my joy for you to take that. So let me read Mark 1, and the verses that we skipped over last time, we'll read those 35 through 39. This is what God's word says for us today. So this is the word of the Lord, and let me pray for us today. Um, God, we give you thanks for um, your living and active word. I pray that um, whatever your, your spirit has already been at work and doing, whether it's through the worship, through the, the fellowship, um, maybe even we've experienced some obstacles on our way in this morning where um, the, the enemy and the powers and the principalities do not want us to um, hear from your living word but we, we long for um, your guidance, not for um, a person's teaching, um, not for ideas of, of humans that are separate from you, but we, we long to hear um, through my words, through, through the ideas that we engage with today. We want your truth and your light to shine through and uh, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, If you saw in that passage, let me put you at ease here. The conclusion of this sermon is not that you have to wake up early uh, and pray while it's still dark or a certain amount of hours um, per day. You may conclude that on your own, but but that's not going to be for my pressure. What the sermon is about is that the kingdom of God is here and it's here now, and the heart of that king matters. And the heart of that king is something that we see in this passage here, what is he like? if you think about it, it makes sense. The, the culture or the atmosphere of a kingdom is always going to be intimately linked to its king. right? Uh, if your leader is a, a tyrant and rules by fear uh, and, and dominates by arresting any political opponents and, and oppresses the, the poor and the vulnerable, and, and you would think that, that the culture of that kingdom would be one of fear. One of anxiety. It might be obedience, but it's going to be driven um, out of a fear of being thrown in jail, right? Or on the flip side, you imagine a kingdom, a nation where the leader is gentle, um, who is strong and is wise, but is accessible and near. Um, I was actually thinking back on um, in my, my undergraduate, my senior research project I did on uh, Ho Chi Minh, the leader of uh, Vietnam in the, the time of uh, the Vietnam War. And, and part of his popularity is that he wore normal clothes. And they, they, every historian comments on his attire as being one of those things that build bridges with the people. Is that he just dressed like an ordinary, accessible person. So, so that shapes the kingdom. So what is the heart of Jesus that we see here? And, and to say the heart of, of Jesus is a way of saying, um, what is at the core of who he is? What are his priorities? What are the the traits that that flow most easily out of him? Um, If you've ever noticed this, um, if you've ever seen a a politician or a celebrity or or somebody in a public place who gets caught in a scandal or or, or does something that they need to make a public apology for, um, you'll hear one of these great lies that we often tell ourselves. You'll hear this line where the person will say something like, excuse me, I don't know what got into me. This is just not who I am. I'm not that kind of person. Uh, But one of my favorite um, uh, authors, Dallas Willard, he'll point out in that moment, he says, that is exactly the kind of person that you are. Because what bubbles up out of us easily when we are under pressure is, is revealing our true heart. And so with Jesus, it's actually remarkable when we'll walk with him through Mark's gospel to see how does he handle pressure? What comes up out of him most naturally when the religious leaders are trying to trap him, the way that he treats the crowds that want things from him, um, especially how he lives and operates in, in his greatest moment of testing um, in the garden and in his arrest right before his crucifixion. What bubbles to the surface in Jesus is his heart, and what we find is, is something that's beautiful. And I I think this teaches us so much about the way of his kingdom. So in our text, if you have a little context from the last uh, couple of verses, uh, paragraphs, Jesus is enjoying this incredible moment of success, right? And if you actually think about it, the way Mark is telling this story, it looks like this is still the, just the day one in his ministry. And we're wrapping up the end of day one, and, and he has burst into the scene. So he, after his baptism, he's started teaching with authority in ways that people have never seen before. He's casting out demonic spirits. He's healing people, doing miraculous things. And the crowds are building. And he's growing in popularity, and people are, are increasing in the number of saying, yes, I want to follow you. I believe that you are this Messiah. And then we get to this passage where we see Jesus withdrawing to pray by himself. And Mark is very intentional, I believe, in placing this in the middle of all this action-packed stuff. And we shouldn't read this as as a quick interruption, but it's actually a significant pattern that you find throughout the life of Jesus. Every gospel account mentions these times that he has withdrawn to pray and to be alone. Luke 5 says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So here in verse 35, we get a picture that it's very early in the morning because it's dark. Maybe it's, you know, one, two in the morning. Maybe it's four. Who knows? And we can assume that Jesus was gone long enough that people wondered, well, where did this guy go? Because, you know, if he was gone five minutes, they might not have noticed, but they have sought him out saying, everybody's looking for you, right? And I want us to look at the timing of what, when Jesus does this, and to think about this in, in a modern lens. This is not the way to launch a movement. Our world today says, Jesus, he has the, the, the momentum right now. So you've got to capture this, right? You've got to strike while the iron is hot. You have this message of good news, Jesus, right? You want more people to hear it, right? Why wouldn't you maximize the potential audience here? And it's interesting, you think, well, Jesus, he, he's withdrawing from the crowds, and like I said, he does this a lot. And, and I was thinking, it would be one thing to think, oh, he's a pastor of a church for 55 years. Like, yeah, you should take a lot of time to just rest and, and recharge. But he's doing this a lot, and he's only doing three years of visible public ministry, right? And yet he still prioritizes withdrawing from the crowds. Uh, in our culture, in social media, it, it's Um, Not unheard of that somebody would become an overnight sensation, right? Um, What's the word that we have for this? Going viral, right? Um, And and what every, whether it's a sports agent or your Hollywood rep or your music manager, everybody's going to tell their star in that moment, this is when you got to capture it. You got to, you know, strike while the iron's hot, raise the sail, catch the wind. You got to start producing more, right? People are hungry. Crank the content, um, you might have seen this uh, viral phenomenon of of this song, this country music artist, um, which I got to say I still haven't heard. And apparently, depending on your politics, you either love this guy or you hate this guy. Um, but it's called the Men North of, or sorry, the Rich Men North of Richmond. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is funny, but, and I lived in a city called Richmond in the Bay Area, and I thought, oh, Richmond. I realized, that's no, a different city. But uh, anyway, this guy, he went from being virtually an unknown artist to, the last I checked his YouTube video, this had 60 million views on it. Um, and he, in an interview, had talked about how people had been flocking to him, trying to represent him, saying, you got to capture the moment, right? Now is the time. Everybody knows your name. Let's go on tour. Let's do a record deal. you got to make records, produce, and whatnot. Nothing is better to grow a movement than a viral moment. And, and maybe that speaks, that we call it that, maybe that speaks unconsciously to what we think about those moments, like being viral isn't good. Um, this is not a positive word. It, it is referring to sickness and disease, right? But um, anyway, we see Jesus in this moment turning away from the crowds, and we see him turn towards these two actions, And and over the years, these actions have become known as what what Christians have called spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. Uh, We would call them prayer and solitude. And I want to spend a little time just reflecting on those. In in prayer, what do we see Jesus doing? We see Him demonstrating something that He will teach about a lot throughout the Gospels. And that is this simple reliance on the Father. A couple of places that um, He describes this, John chapter 5 very truly, I tell you, Jesus says, that the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Uh, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. And then John 14, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words I say to you, do, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. The foundation of Jesus' ministry is prayer because that is the place that he, he comes to know the will of his Father. That is the place that he is strengthened by his Father. And it says that he does nothing apart from the Father. Jesus knows that his ministry success will not be because he captured momentum. His ministry success will be because he is connected to God, and he is doing the will of God, and he is energized by God's power, and nothing more. And I was thinking about that. That is my my prayer for this church, that I don't want us to feel like we have grown because there is some sort of moment that we captured, right? Um, That there's some sort of of buzz, and we had this, you know, one of Eric's amazing Instagram stories went viral and, you know, all the masses were coming next Sunday. I want people to find something good here because they find the Father here, that there's some sort of life here because we are connected to that source of life, and that is God the Father. And so as we see in this pattern in the life of Jesus, that is my prayer for us as a church. Um, what, what did Jesus pray? That's a question that I was thinking about this week. Um, we don't always know. Uh, like here, it doesn't tell us what he was praying. We get ideas from other places in Scripture. We see Jesus asking for help when he feels burdened, like when he prayed in the garden saying, Father, take this cup from me. Uh, sometimes what John 17 says I think is amazing. It says that he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for us. He says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. Like, that's a really beautiful picture to think Jesus is praying for us, right? Uh, maybe he was silently enjoying the presence of the Father. Maybe he was resting in the Father. Maybe he was worshiping. Maybe he was doing some sort of, of all of those. And whatever it was, there, there's some obvious application here for us today. And I'll state it very plainly. As a follower of Jesus, you should also pray. If Jesus, in his perfection, felt the need to be with God in prayer, then we should also find some sort of necessity in that as well. And if I'm being honest, though, for me personally, prayer is, is really hard. Uh, I don't know if it's just uh, how I'm hardwired or lack of discipline or just my life experiences that have led me up to this moment but, but it feels, I can feel a bit hypocritical anytime that I'm teaching about prayer because it's one of those, do as I say, not as I do, right? Um, I, I am not a deep well that I could speak from, you know, decades of this just deep abiding in the Father. Um, but i long for more of this. I was thinking about it like nutrition. I, I read recently that uh, nearly 50% of Americans have a chronic disease that is preventable. 50%. And much of that is linked to a, a, a deficiency in some sort of vitamin and mineral. And I I know this from my own personal physical feeling, but I think a lot of us are at this place where we've just kind of learned to function um, in ways that we are less l- operating at a lower capacity than, than what we can, and we're just used to it. Like, we, we are used to functioning in a place of, yeah, I'm tired all the time, and my stomach hurts, and I got headaches, and that's just normal, right? Um, So say you're deficient in something like uh, iron or magnesium, and then you start eating foods that give you those nutrients. Well, all of a sudden, you start to feel this strength and this alertness that you didn't even know you were lacking. And I think prayer is a little bit like that. Like, I could get by without prayer. I could still be a dad, a husband. I could still function and do my job. I can make time for people and whatnot. But there's just so much that I would be missing out on. I'm made for this connection with God, and that connection happens in in a special way in prayer that it doesn't happen in any other way. And as Jesus has been telling people, everything that I do is from the Father. Well, he says this to his disciples as well. John 15, he says, I am the vine, and you, my disciples, are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing." I don't think we read this and think Jesus is going to punish you if you don't pray. But he is saying, you are going to miss the life that I have for you. You are going to miss the the, the joy and the wisdom and, and the power and the support that I want to give you in prayer. Sure, you could get by without prayer, but why would we want that? And so while I can't say uh, pray like me because my prayer life is just awesome, right? It's rocking. Um, I do think I could... Put out a simple invitation to try it. Uh, maybe you do, and you you have uh, a a rich prayer life, and I, and I know that from a lot of you that I have learned from you and how you talk about prayer. Um, but I think I can say, just try it. I heard this phrase once um, from some video on prayer that it was saying, um, very simple instructions: keep it simple, keep it real, and keep it going. All right? Keep it simple, keep it real, and keep it going. Just Practice prayer, five minutes. Be honest with God and just keep at it. So keep it simple, real, and keep it going. That would be one place to start. So, I said that there were two practices that we see Jesus engaging in: prayer, and the other one is solitude. Uh, Solitude is something that naturally can come along with prayer. We often pray alone, whether it's a a quiet seat in your apartment or your house or your your favorite place and I don't know, in a park somewhere, uh, not for the last three months if you're in Dallas, but maybe now, this week, we could start this. Um, but solitude has some more planning needed than prayer. We could pray while driving, right? We could pray in in the middle of a coffee shop. But, but to see what Jesus does, look at him withdraw here. And these crowds, they're, they're looking for him. So we assume it takes some work that he went out of the time that people weren't going to see him, like the paparazzi waiting, like, there he is. But he, it took some planning um, and some intentionality and to get away. And, and again, if Jesus finds this as a valuable pattern for his own life, I think it's safe to assume that we would benefit from this as well. If Jesus needed solitude, we probably need it as well. And this pattern actually that we see here he's not just isolating um he's not you know burned out from the crowds but it's actually this back and forth pattern that you see a lot between community and engagement with community and and solitude with god but then it's for the purpose of going back into the community but then withdrawing to be with god this guy's a dream he's an introvert and an extrovert right we could all connect with jesus on this so, so he would, would serve and he would teach and he would give and he would heal. And, it, and it's not like it was a cup just pouring out, but I was thinking about it. It's like a cup that is just overflowing, right? And it's, it's like you can visualize Jesus when he's going back to be with the Father and the Father just pouring into him and just this overflowing living water over the brim of this cup. Again, I, I don't think it's Jesus burned out needing a break from the people, but it is him preparing to better serve and to better love and and to come back with it, with knowing the will of the Father as he goes back, goes out with the people, um, like prayer, solitude is a practice for me that i i 'm just scratching at the surface this is one that i've i 've only been trying more recently in my life, but it's one that i I really enjoy um, I, It had been a while since i'd been really intentional to kind of get away, and so um, this is the benefit of knowing i 'm going to preach on something that's like I should really try that this week. So I carved out some time to just sit alone, and I, I was fortunate enough to find a little quiet, beautiful church chapel. And I just sat there for 20 minutes. And I prayed a little, but I also made sure I prayed very simple prayers that, that my mind wasn't thinking of, of saying stuff and doing stuff. But I wanted to just sit there and, and be there. Uh, I didn't walk away with any spiritual epiphany, I didn't cry. Um, I cry sometimes. I didn't cry that time. And um, and it was just like I was there with God, and it was it was just nice. And and I thought about God, and, and I, I wanted to fix my eyes and my attention on God, knowing that He was doing that with me, and He was looking at me in that moment. And, and something that solitude can teach us, and silence and solitude can teach us, is, is we find ourselves in a place where we can simply be, right? We don't have to produce anything. We can just be there. And it's that phrase you've probably heard that, that sometimes we forget that we are human beings and we think that we're human doings, right? That our identity comes from doing stuff. And I think we can recapture in some some of these practices that that being is good, right? That our value to the world is not in what we produce. It's not in our job title or the neighborhood we live in, but it is simply that we are humans who bear the image of God. And that is where our, our value derives from that. So solitude is one of those practices It can help us capture that. And there's a freedom in that, I think, that we don't have to conjure up the, the, a perfect environment, but it, it's just showing up and saying, God, you're enough, and to sit in your presence is enough here. And part of the value in that, the way that these practices, of, of especially silence and solitude, they, they push back against these forces that are coming at us so hard, and they they push back against these forces of busyness and productivity, right? In solitude, we could just let our minds wander and follow those thoughts, and what we might find is that we follow those thoughts to places that are causing anxiety or places of worry, and then we can, we can have some personal reflection. We, we might start thinking about our hopes and dreams. For me, it's usually about five minutes after I stop. Like my mind is just going crazy a little bit. Eventually, it wanders to kids, um, soccer, you know, my grocery list, something in there. And then it just kind of starts to settle down. And then my mind starts going to places of significance. And that can be a scary place. Uh, it's a place where we must actually face what is going on internally. And I mean, I think if we're being honest, we don't always know what to do with those feelings or know where to go with them. Um, there's this well-known French philosopher, Blaise Pascal. You've probably heard his name. And, and he's saying this 400 years ago, but listen how timely this is. He's, he's speaking about the ways that we seek out diversions so that we don't think of our own unhappiness And he said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Like, those are pretty strong words, right? And is that true of the risk of busyness and the risk of diversion? And is that also true about the potential value of silence and solitude? And in solitude, yeah, sure, we might find that shadow side that we like to ignore, But once we find that, we know that we can then take that to God in prayer. We can take that to this Abba Father, and we can ask Him for help. Uh, So silence and solitude, there's something about them that that you think about, they're probably the most unproductive way that we could spend our time. And I think that's really good for our soul, especially in, in the world that we live in today. Where we, we are so pulled towards these gods of efficiency and productivity, right? And, and to spend time by yourself doing absolutely nothing is awful by those standards. Um, have you ever stood somewhere? I've been trying this recently. Um, and if you've ever been waiting, um, maybe I'll practice this on Monday. I'll be in a waiting room and a doctor. going to get a scan on my ankle to see how this thing's looking internally. But But if you're sitting there waiting or, or waiting for, you know, your name, your number to be called... And don't pull out your phone and just stand there and do nothing. And, and it's kind of uncomfortable. And sometimes I think people are looking at me like I'm a psychopath. Like, what is he doing just standing there looking at people? Like, what's he going to do next? Like, that's what I'm worried that they're thinking about me. Um, th- there's this great book. Um, and I, we have one more. Co- I looked at my garage. I only found one more copy of this um, so no judgment if you run over there and you want to grab it from the little book table. Um, uh, it's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And the title of that comes from something that, that my favorite guy, Dallas Willard, um, he once said in response to another pastor. So this other pastor asked Dallas once, he said, what do I need to do to become the me I want to be? And Willard, it says that he gave this awkwardly long pause, which apparently was just kind of his MO, Um, And he answered, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And then the pastor says, okay, what else? And Willard answered him, he says, there's nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry in our lives. The constant hurry, the constant noise, the distractions, the, the pressure to be productive these things can kill the spiritual life but but silence and solitude and prayer are practices that can also kill that hurried life these these practices they are they're gifts of grace these are the the paradox of of what jesus has called the the easy yoke and the light burden right it's it's more like strapping on water wings you know those floaties on on a kid who can't swim right yes you're you're adding something on but once they put those on and they jump in the water then there's actually this increased freedom, right? They can start swimming around. They can float and they can move around freely and enjoy the pool in a way that they could not without them. So it's the easy yoke and the light burden. Uh, I want to wrap up today and just uh, thinking about where we started looking at the heart of Jesus. And I want us to see how much this heart is not just this, this nice idea of this person who loved to commune with the Father and love to pray. and But I want you to see how much His heart is for you. And thinking about my own prayer life and reflecting and thinking about, you know, what is keeping me back, right? What is holding me back from going deeper into my prayer life? And, and I think there's, there's a number of reasons, but one thought that um, my mind kind of wandered to this place. Uh, and, and maybe this sounds like cheesy, like I stole this from like some contemporary love song. But I thought... Maybe I just need to let myself accept the love of God more. That, that I need to let myself be loved by God. Like, I, I know about the love of God. Like, I'm a pastor. I know all of the right answers, okay? I don't, I don't, maybe not, I know most of the right answers. But man, that distance between my head and my heart is really big sometimes. And, and my theology on the love of God, I think is pretty solid. But I don't know if it just, it sinks in this gut conviction that the creator of the universe desires to spend time with me. And maybe it's because I think of my, my behavior or my performance or productivity or, or sin that week or, or my, my ability to be a good dad or a good husband that, that somehow how I was in the week before impacts God's view of me or impacts God's love for me. Um, Maybe there's something about that that I think there's this performance-related kind of love, and that's certainly not true. Or maybe I look at Jesus. I think that's sometimes the case. I'm like, well, of course Jesus would have a good prayer life. Like He's perfect. He's Jesus, okay? And, And God loves him certainly more than he loves me. Yeah, Jesus is perfect, but isn't the good news that it is actually the righteousness of Christ that covers us? That that the New Testament says that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so maybe it starts with asking God for the faith to believe that he might in fact love us more than we would ever dare imagine. And that we might find in that conclusion an increased desire to spend time with him in prayer. Romans 5.8, is this well-known verse where it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Christ is God's proof. It is His demonstration of His love. We don't have to wonder, does He really love me or not? We look at the singular event in time and space that is, I love you, okay? That is a definitive statement, and and God is always consistent. Like, you think about Jesus, okay? A couple thousand years ago, He was a certain way, but, but the love that he has for his disciples didn't just wear out. Like, he didn't grow tired of us. You think about this heart that he has for prayer and intercession. That didn't end when he went up into heaven, right? He didn't get distracted by other things. And now he's stopped being this one who loves uh, intercessory prayer. Um, in, In this book, Gentle and Lowly, which I did find extra copies of that. So if you want that, there's a few of them. Um, it's one of my favorite books. And uh, in it, the author, Dane Ortland he asked a question that I never really thought about before. And he says, there has been a remarkable recovery of the glory of what Christ did back then in his life and death and resurrection to save me. But what about what is he doing now? For many of us, our functional Jesus isn't really doing anything right now. Everything we need to be saved, we tend to think, is already accomplished. And then he points out, but in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, in the text of this, he, the, the, uh, the writer of the, the book of Hebrews is describing these Jewish high priests. And he's saying, and they constantly are having to make these sacrifices, and there constantly needs to be a new priest because, well, they don't live forever, and they die, and so that work doesn't continue, so there needs to be a new high priest. And then it says this in Hebrews seven twenty three. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because, listen to this, because he always lives to intercede for them. Like Jesus always lives to intercede for you. And but you see what this is saying? This is saying that, that he is currently doing this now on our behalf with God, advocating for us, interceding on our behalf. And it says, Hebrews 7 says, he is able to save completely. This means every dark corner of your life, every place that you might find in silence and solitude, the stuff that you think God hates about you, even that is covered by the work of Jesus on the cross. And Jesus lives for this work, he loves his job. So while we continue to sin and fall short daily, he intercedes and he he is applying his atoning death on the cross for our sin, applying that daily to our actions. And he's doing this right now for you. And Ortland, he concludes with this. I love this picture. He says, one way to think of Christ's intercession then is simply this. Jesus is praying for you right now. It's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life. Our prayer life stinks most of the time. But what if you heard Jesus praying aloud for you in the next room? Few things would calm us more deeply.